As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now, David Stubbs, Global Head of Cross-Asset Thematic Strategy at J.P. Morgan Private Bank. David, good to catch up with you, sir. Let's start here. Can you give me one good reason to be bullish right now? Well, John, I think if you're going to make the bullish case, I think you're going to look at the resilience of you know, domestic consumer spending uh, you know, in parts of the Western world. I think you're also going to look at how much tightening has been priced in and, uh, and, and indeed expectations of uh, recession you know, broadening across, uh, you know, across Wall Street. But I think bullish is not that we're going to see uh, the kind of boom conditions we saw last year. Bullish would be a, a soft landing, a pretty soggy uh, year economy ne- next year, but one that avoids a recession and avoids a major drawdown in earnings. That's as bullish as you can get, I think, right now. That's not exactly a ringing endorsement of risk assets, David. I do wonder, especially at a time when Tina is dead, right, there is an alternative and it is cash. It is short-term instruments that are actually yielding something uh, on inflation-adjusted terms for the first time in a long time. Is there any justification not to just hide out in some of these instruments, collect the income, and wait for a better, more clear entry? Well, we are absolutely recommending parts of the fixed income universe uh, you know, at this point, as you, as you rightly say. A lot of value has been created both at the short and long end. As, uh, as you were saying in the intro, uh, the 10-year at three, uh, 350, we would be buyers of that in, in portfolios that don't have any duration right now. We see a lot of value in preferreds uh, as well. So there's plenty of ways to meet your financial goals if you want a mid-single-digit uh, return without taking a lot of equity risk. And it's maybe the first time you could say that. In, in, in a long, long time, given the lower for longer you know, era that we've been through on interest rates. David. But also, Lisa, I think, that, I think that you've really seen still some value be created in the structural, you know, in the structural changes that we see in the economy going, going forward. Clean energy, fintech, uh, you know, genetic therapy, some tremendous uh, you know, uh, value there in, in factors and themes that are going to 
be huge drivers of our society going forward. David, I just want you to elaborate a little bit. You said that you would be buyers of 10-year treasuries at 3.5%. Do you think that this is the new peak and that basically they cannot continue to lose more value yields up further? Oh, no, we'd never, we'd never say that definitively. Uh, but we just think that uh, parts of the fixed income space right now have some asymmetry about them. If we do go into a recession next year, we would expect uh, your bond yields to fall significantly. And we think that the potential returns in that scenario are now greater than the losses um, that you may get if, if bond yields continue to drift higher. So, look, there's absolutely not a risk-free trade right now, but a lot of, uh, of our clients' portfolios have very, very short to, to nil duration. And clients have been waiting to leg in to uh, better yields over, you know, over the medium to longer term. Well, now here they are. And I think for, for the right portfolio, for clients looking um, you know, for, you know, for that yield and for that stable return, treasuries now are, are an option in the way, as you said, that they had not been in the previous decade. Hey, Dave, thank you. David Stubbs there of JP Morgan Private Bank. Dana Peterson joins us now, Chief Economist at the Conference Board. Dana, can you tell us how bad things are in this economy? Because the data we're still getting signals resilience. Are you seeing the same thing? Sure. Uh, we're definitely seeing resilience in the U.S. economy. The labor market's still strong. Jobless claims have been coming off. The JOLTS data tell us that there's still a lot of job openings. When we look at GDP tracking for the third quarter, maybe we'll have something just slightly north of zero. Uh, certainly consumers did spend in August. Uh, spending was up two-tenths of a percentage point in real terms. And also the trade outlook uh, is looking a little bit better. Uh, with all of that, we think that the Fed is it's, – it's a great opportunity for the Fed to continue to raise interest rates to tackle really elevated inflation. Okay. So to go to John's point, is consumer resilience good or bad? You're saying it's a good opportunity for the Fed to raise rates, which other people would say is bad for the economy longer term. Well, I mean – the thing is that inflation is is really bad, right? So the headline inflation for the CPI only ticked down to 8.3%. Meanwhile, the core moved upward to 6.3%. A lot of the drivers are food and shelter costs, basics for consumers. So that's really negative uh, for the consumer. And certainly it erodes uh, their incomes. And so it's definitely not a good thing if you have high inflation. But certainly it is a good thing if consumers are able to still weather higher interest rate hikes. Certainly that weighs on uh, housing uh, purchases. But nonetheless, it's still a good thing overall for the economy. Do you have a sense of how quickly we're going to see the effects of the rate rises that we've already seen of quantitative tightening that has yet to really happen, but ostensibly will happen at some point in the near future? How long does it take before it hits the economy? Well, I mean, the thing is that it's really difficult to know. I mean, back a long time ago, we would say, well, it takes 12 to 18 months for any Fed actions to really feed through. But we're already seeing that Fed actions are having an impact on the housing market. Um, and that's certainly a, a positive for the Fed in terms of its its addressing inflation. So you're getting at those asset prices, even though the Fed does not target asset prices. But certainly in terms of the consumer price indexes, the Fed still, you know, really needs to do the work now, and we should probably start seeing the effects later on next year. We're thinking that uh, core inflate, well, key inflation gauges probably won't return to 2% until very early 2024. Dana, every single piece of research we've had basically over the last week has been a bank somewhere on Wall Street upgrading their terminal rate view. 
Goldman, the latest, they look for 4 to 4.25 by year end in 22 and maybe higher than that by the time we get through 2023. Dana, the number one pushback that Lisa gets, that I get, that Tom gets, is that we can't live with 4% rates, that this economy just can't live with it, that the debt piles is too high, uh, the sovereign and the treasury. Dana, do you agree with that? What's the constructive view on why we can live with a 4 or 4.5% Fed funds rate? Well, I mean, first of all, I want to say the conference board came out really early with that call for an interest rate of, uh, topping out at 4%. And we've even been saying it could be even higher if inflation doesn't uh, really move and it remains sticky. But I think the Aguas economy can. And certainly, uh, when you think about uh, what policymakers have been saying, they're saying, look, you know, we're in for a bit of pain which I think is code for a recession, a mild, maybe brief recession. And certainly when you look at the labor markets, that's still super strong. It's going to remain uh, pretty robust, especially given the fact that you have labor shortages. And so that means there's still going to be some hiring and not a cratering in the labor market. I think with all of that, yes, uh, the U.S. economy is going to have to endure a period of elevated interest rates in order to tackle inflation. Inflation's the worst problem here. So, Dana, that's going to lead to higher unemployment by design. And we've been talking about this. How much higher? I mean, do we see a commensurate increase in your expectations for the unemployment rate with every increase that we hear, to John's point from Wall Street, about the Fed funds rate and where we end up? We think uh, with our forecast of a 4% Fed funds rate, we think the unemployment rate will probably rise to 4%. Even still, that's incredibly low. Um, And even if we go into 45 go to four and a half percent, that's probably around the neutral rate. Um, And so that suggests we still have a very strong labor market. We're not expecting to see five and six percent unemployment here. This is a very different labor market. We didn't have shortages 10, 20 years ago. We do now. And that's really going to help, uh, I think, keep the labor market from uh, worsening relative to the uh, overall economy. Is it instructive for us to look at averages here when we talk about the labor market, when we talk about how well different households can weather this, especially because you're talking about, you know, half of the income in the United States driven by households that earn more than $100,000 is put out there by Morgan Stanley. Most of them own their own homes, either uh, outright or else with mortgage rates that were locked in low uh, at very low rates. The rest of the economy, the rest of the households are really struggling, both because they've got lower income and because they have uh, not fixed costs, but pay rents and have to deal with the increase there. How do you gauge that out at a time where we're looking at averages to determine policy? Well, it's interesting when you look at uh, certainly wage gains, uh, the folks who gain the most in terms of wage gains over the next last over the last couple of years have been people on the lower end of the income spectrum, also people who have been quitting, also people who work in those in-person services types of jobs that tend to have lower wages in general. Those are the people who have seen the biggest gains in wages. And so it's, I mean, we certainly should look at the granular data, but it's not necessarily the case that, you know, folks at the lower end of the spectrum have been losing out here. They've actually been gaining uh, by quitting and also uh, through the very aggressive tactics that companies have been using to attract labor, especially for things for businesses like restaurants and hotels and manufacturing and transportation, which tend to have uh, folks on the lower end of the income spectrum. Lisa, credit to Jean Bavan of BlackRock for coming out in the last month or so and raising a question that I don't think we've talked enough about, which is what is the appropriate time frame to try and bring inflation back towards target? What you hear there from Dana is 2024. 
not a 2023 story. And I just wonder if the risk is skewed towards maybe pushing that out even further. This task might be bigger, more difficult than maybe we've given it credit for. And perhaps people won't have the appetite for some of the economic pain in order to get it down to 2% by 2023 or even 2024. And I think that that, to your point, is the whole Adam Posen view. Do we get comfortable with a 3% target for a little bit longer? Is that politically feasible? But Daniel, would you go with that? Do you think maybe risks are skewed to this taking longer? Well, it certainly is in our forecast that it's going to take a while. Like We don't have the uh, policy. I'm sorry. We don't have interest rates. We don't have interest rates falling next year because we think inflation is going to remain elevated. And certainly uh, this is going to take some time. But there is that possibility out there. This is something that I was saying earlier in the spring that maybe the Fed will get more comfortable with having inflation closer to 3% than 2%, especially if we have a very significant downturn in economic activity. But I think it's also a function of the fact that we have a lot more inflationary pressures, long-term inflationary pressures, such as labor shortages, such as a semiconductor shortage, such as industrial policies where businesses have to reorient their supply chain that's very expensive. And so all those things are going to get passed on to the customer. And so it's going to be very difficult, I think, for the Fed to keep interest rate, I'm sorry, to keep inflation close to that 2% target. And so either, so I think that those are all forces out there that are going to weigh on uh, the Fed and certainly the economy over the longer term. Dana, you're one of the best. Thanks for being with us. Dana Peterson there at the conference board. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Matt Brill joins us now, the head of U.S. investment grade and senior portfolio manager at Invesco. Matt, have we seen the worst of it? And do you want to start buying? Hey, good morning, Jonathan. Uh, I think we've 
we've probably not seen the worst of it yet, um, but it, it, <laughs> things are certainly attractive. I think if you look at valuations, it's, it's impossible to argue that they don't things don't look cheap, particularly in investment grade and high yield. They look very cheap, but the, the problem is investors keep being early, and, and it's painful to be early. You know, the, the old saying is, um, you know, if you're early, you're wrong. And, and right now, everybody that's been early has been wrong. And, and so, even though the valuations are there, it looks attractive. You're probably going to make money over the next year, but over the next few weeks, who knows? We still got to get to the next CPI print before you can have any sort of clarity at this point. Although, Matt, a lot of people question what credit spreads, what the extra premium that investors demand to own corporate debt over benchmark rates, over the benchmark full faith and credit of the United States, whether that's actually pricing in the economic pain that a four to four and a half percent Fed funds rate is conferring. Do you think so? So at this point, it's not. It's, it's really pricing in a slowdown of the economy. It's not pricing in a hard recession. Um, you know, I think at this point, all in yields, you know, are historically, you know, have not been have not been this high in 13 years. So if you're looking at pure credit spreads versus all in yields, it's a little bit different of story. But we're not seeing a lot of pain in corporate credit the last few weeks, even or last week or so, even after the CPI. It's mainly been rate driven. So the the, the credit markets are telling you that corporations can get through this. Um, that unless this this it, inflation continues for forever, um, you know, at some point we're going to get uh, the Fed more in balance, and we're actually going to see. Um, the strength of these balance sheets went out, but we still have to get to that terminal, you know, terminal high and terminal rate in order to know, you know, how bad it's going to be from the Fed. A number of investors have gotten pretty bullish, actually, on the prospect of credit. I'm thinking, for example, of Jeff Gunlock over at Double Line or Oak Tree, seeing equity-like potential returns in credit. Do you agree that at this point it's a time to lean in and that you're going to get really good returns? So yeah, we look at the the difference between uh, equity yields and credit yields, and if you, I like to look at three to five year credit yields because you don't have to take on a lot of duration there. And you're, you're getting about three percentage points extra yield by buying bonds than you are buying stocks. And so to me, it's, 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 it's a very, very attractive time to be buying bonds versus stocks. And I'm not, you know, not a stock expert, but I'm just saying on a relative basis, it looks pretty good to me. Um, and so from that standpoint, you're locking in 5% yields for the first time since 2009 on 10-year credit. You can lock in pretty much the same on front-end credit. So for, I, I like credit at this point. Again, I just think that the timing is very difficult. But if you're able to close your eyes and buy, we think you're going to do well. Matt, I've got no problem with the bond market guys talking about stocks. The stock market guys do it <laughs> all the time. They're always talking about the bond market. Matt, Lisa and I have reflected on the following over the last week or so. In fact, we've been doing it for a few months now. The tone that I still get from a lot of guests on this program is that these issues are still somewhat temporary. That even if the Fed goes to four, four and a half, ultimately we return to the world of the last 10 years or so. Are you pushing back against that, Matt? I think we'll eventually get there, but it's just taking so long to get anywhere. If you just think about how long we've been in this pandemic, how long we've been in, you know, we're officially out of it now, I guess. But it's just taking longer to get out of everything and to get back to normal. So um, I think the longer term trends down the road, aging demographics, technological innovation, you know, those are key drivers of, of, of having deflation or lower inflation, but they just can't take place fast enough right now. And so in that regard, any expectations that we would have had for a quicker turnaround have been, have been put on hold um, or, or a, quicker, uh, a quicker return to normal. And so from that standpoint, we're going to have to ride this out a little longer. The next CPI print is going to be you know, on everybody's mind, but that may not be enough. For, we're going to have to wait for another one and then another one. So you know, call it 2024, 2025, but it's not happening nearly as quickly as we'd like it to. We just have to rely on valuations being attractive at this point. Just quickly, Matt, what would you be asking Fed Chair Jay Powell this Wednesday? What do you want to hear from him? So I want to know two things. First off, you know, what are you going to do with your, your mortgage book? Um, you know, are you going to start to sell? Is that, are, are, you, are, are, you, are you considering that at this point at least? 
And then second, I, I want to know how patient are you? You know, we know that there's a lot of hikes that have been in the pipeline. There's a lot of pipes that a lot of hikes that are going to hit the economy at some point. You know, how patient are you willing to be? And and, and at what point are, are you are you going to be more you know, even more aggressive? You know, that would be 100 basis points rather than 75. I think he's going to take his time. I think he has to know that this is going to slow the economy. Um, but if he just says I, I'm out of patience, um, you know, that's going to be a problem. Matt Brill of Invesco. Matt's got to catch up, buddy, as always. Peter Shear, head of macro strategy at Academy Securities, joining us now. And Peter, you were talking about last week and that something happened that was pretty dramatic in your view. And it wasn't necessarily a total reset of Fed expectations. It was FedEx. Explain. Listen, I keep looking at the data and a lot of the data we get is backward looking. It's weak. It tends to get revised. So I'm kind of looking what is really contemporaneous? What is effective? And the FedEx warning to me is real, right? That, that's someone seeing business move in real time. It's day to today. It came right on the heels of CPI, where we had housing inflation was up 0.7%, one of the biggest contributors to the CPI. And yet, as far as anyone can tell, nothing good is going on in the housing market right now. So I think we all know where the data is headed as the official data catches up. And it's going to be weak and it's going to be a little bit scary. So do you think that the Fed's going to reflect this on Wednesday when we hear from them? Wow. I think they are caught in such a, you know, between a rock and a hard spot where they've been so hawkish starting at Jackson Hole. They've been continuing that message. But I think someone's got to step back and say, OK, we've got to be a little bit careful. Traditionally, it does take some time for our hikes to come through the economy and everything we're seeing real time. And especially if you look at the wealth effect is saying, whoa, this is getting a little bit dangerous. I think the fixation on CPI, how it's calculated, is wrong. I think Powell, as usual, is going to wind up having to let some of his inner dove come out. So you said uh, it's getting a little bit dangerous. Can you explain? Because a lot of people are pointing to the resilience of the consumer. Yes, perhaps FedEx is an outlier. Perhaps there's some idiosyncratic issues in tandem with a global economy that's slowing down. But what are you looking at that's telling you that things are getting dangerous? Well, I'll even go back to the consumer, right? People are saying the consumer did well. But if you look at the control group, People thought they spent 0.8% last month. It turns out they only spent 0.4. Expectations were 0.5 this month. They spent 0%. So I don't think the consumer is anywhere near as strong. I think they're going back to buying discounting. I'm watching the inventory build, which has been shocking. We're seeing month after month after month of inventory build as two things I think happen. One, companies overestimated consumer demand. They didn't realize how much consumers were pulling forward because they were worried about supply chains. And two companies were so worried about supply chains, they've overstocked. So I think that's a real hangover for this economy. Then I look at crypto and that whole market space, right? It went to two trillion, it funded all these industries, they're all struggling, and they were spending money wherever they could, right? They were buying chips, they were buying new computer systems, they were buying you know, ads on anything. As they have to focus on actually just survival and turning cash flow positive, that's going to be a big chunk of this economy. These disruptive stocks, I keep coming back to them. They were such a huge part of the growth story. And I think they're going to really weigh on the economy because their employees were rich in spending and the companies themselves were cash rich in spending. And that's not occurring right now. OK, so, Peter, you said that Fed Chair Jay Powell needs to let out his inner dove in order to counteract some of the weakness that you're seeing uh, to build at a pretty rapid clip throughout the economy. But then other people, particularly equity bulls, would argue this is exactly what they're counting on. Basically, the Fed pivoting, right? This goes back to that discussion that exhausted so many people and no one, nobody wanted to hear the P word ever again. I mean, is that basically what you're saying? That this is a bull case for markets because it is a bear case for the economy and a bear case for this Federal Reserve? I think it's a temporary bull case. I think we're well past the stage of lower yields being good for the economy. I think we might get a bounce on the Fed if he does this little bit of a pivot. 
But I think the real, reality is just he's gone too far. We're still feel, starting to feel the impacts of what's gone on before. And people are going to realize generally lower commodity prices, lower bond yields are the risk off type trade. I think we forgot all about that. And then let's not forget, we've started quantitative tightening a little bit more aggressively. We're going to see more of that. And to me, I've always believed that quantitative easing really forced people out the risk spectrum and inflated all asset prices. And so I think the corollary of that is going to be that quantitative tightening allows people to move down the risk spectrum. So I think you've got that as an additional headwind, and that's just starting to ramp up. So right now I'm looking at two-year yields that have really pushed higher dramatically this morning, 3.93%. We're really close to that 4% level. If you talk about lower yields being a bad thing for the economy, is it a good thing as an investor to go into bonds as an actual haven at a time when they're providing yield? We were hearing from David Stubbs from J.P. Morgan. We've heard uh, from Matt Brill over at Invesco, both talking up the bull case for bonds. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm definitely overweight bonds. I like them. You know, I hate to even say this because it's been such a disaster, but the 20-year Treasury actually is appealing. And over the past three weeks, I think we've seen a little bit more support for that 20-year. It's just such an outlier in the yield curve that it seems attractive. So I like being overweight bonds. I like the longer data more than the front end just because I think we'll get more bang for the buck. But I think that's uh, really, it's going to be important. And I don't think stocks are going to go higher on the back of lower yields, maybe initially, but it's going to be one of these risk off tech trades. So we've heard from Oak Tree, we've heard from Double Line, Jeff Gunlock, and they've been talking about pretty extreme yield returns for credit, for uh, some of this longer term debt, talking up equity-like returns. Is that plausible in your view, or do you think that this is going to just be less painful for bond investors than for stocks? Yeah, I think it's just going to be less painful. I think quantitative tightening is going to keep a lid on the ability for bonds to really, really rally. I think it's going to take a little bit of time for the economic data to sink in. So I think you'll get a decent gain. Uh, you know, I could see a 10% return on the long bond though over the next month or two. Over the next month or two. So, yeah. wow. Uh, what are you looking to hear from Fed Chair Jay Powell on Wednesday? What I'd like to hear is him paying a little bit more attention to the econ data, to the forward-looking stuff, maybe even you know, a shout out to the FedEx and say, hey, we have to manage both sides of this, right? We do have full employment as well as inflation. There's a lot of signs inflation are rolling over. We've got to look at the more contemporaneous data. I, I think something like that would be realistic. I think if he starts pounding on that 75 bits for the next meeting, blah, 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 I think markets are going to be respond very, very poorly because he's just going to drive us into a recession. Just real quick here, I'm wondering your perspective on oil prices. We were talking earlier. What signal is nearly $80 on uh, WTI sending to global markets that are still looking with this uh, disproportionate imbalance with supply and demand? So to me, I think it's a negative signal. And I've been talking about this going back for months. We've all been kind of looking, oh, lower oil prices, lower inflation. That's good. Historically, whether you go back to the 2000s, the great financial crisis, um, European debt crisis, lower oil prices is generally bad for equities, right? It is a signal that the economy is slowing. And if you just go back to my one big argument about we underestimate how important crypto was, right? If they were generating through their mining all this energy usage and that industry starts dying off, which I think it's very high probability that it does in the coming months, that's just another source of demand that we had. So I think, again, we're spending way too much policy time responding to prior problems than to the current problems. Peter Shear of Academy Securities, thank you so much uh, for being with us. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. 
for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.